coming up on Launch Stories. An essential element to understand a market is, is called culture. You get that only from local people uh, that work in that market. To some extent, of course, there are things you can you can grow and expand internationally without too much presence. But I mean, I, I have never seen a, a successful expansion without a, a, a physical presence in, in that dedicated market. Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardy. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories, get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Julien Costery. Julien is an experienced entrepreneur and investor and founding partner of the venture capital firm Bill Rouge Capital, based in Croatia. Julien has worked in more than 80 countries and five continents and so has an amazing insight into global business. He knows firsthand what it takes to build a company from the ground up. So I'm really excited to hear his story. So let's welcome Julien Costery. Hello, Julien. Good to see you again. Hi, Zoltan. Good to see you. Absolutely. Always good to see you. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, uh, we've known each other for quite a few years, So, although I know you quite well. Before we get started, I thought I'd share a few details about you for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, your exceptional background. So Julian has over 20 years of experience in manufacturing and services, much of it at the CEO level. Uh, early in his career, he traveled around the world building mobile phone networks from the ground up. And as his career progressed, he ended up building entire mobile phone companies from scratch. And he really did this in some exotic locations, uh, places like Brazil, Haiti, Indonesia, and the Solomon Islands. You know, in 2011, he left the corporate world behind to let his entrepreneurial spirit flourish. And he was co-founder and chief operating officer of an ad tech startup called Double Recall. Uh, he moved on to become an active founder of ABC Accelerator in Slovenia and of ABC First Growth, the Accelerator's venture capital arm. And he became a serial investor in early stage businesses and co-invested in more than 40 early stage ventures. So Julian has been the founding partner of Field Rouge Capital since 2016 and has been instrumental in the firm's rise as a leading investor in Central and Eastern Europe. So Julian, um, I remember when we first met, it was probably more than 10 years ago, uh, we were having uh, drinks or lunch, something like that in Budapest. and. You had just joined a startup, Double Recall, the, the company that I mentioned in the introduction. And I remember sitting across the table from you, somebody roughly my age, roughly my background in the corporate world. And I was thinking to myself, what the hell is this guy doing, leaving behind the cushy corporate world to start a startup? What was the reason for your move? Well, I think uh, as many of my moves in my in my past and hopefully in my future, um, uh, they are all driven by people. Um, so I think, um, you know, there, there is always someone that has the words to convince you to do something. Uh, and I guess that's exact, exactly what happened with the double recall guys. Um, and what did they say to convince you? 
Um, they said, um, uh, we are going to the US market and we are not going to do it without you. So uh, join us as a <laughs> co-founder. They didn't give you a choice. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and, and I liked it and I liked those guys and I, you know, I just said, well, uh, let's give it a try. I mean, why not? Uh, and I recall that your entry into the US market was quite unusual in that you actually were accepted into Y Combinator, which is generally considered one of the most elite accelerated programs in the world. Um, Tell me about your experience there. What was it like to to uh, to take part in uh, in the Y Combinator program? Yeah, I mean, look, YC is really touching with your finger the uh, the American startup dream. I mean, you you meet Al Gore, you meet Zuckerberg, you meet Brian Chesky. I mean, you know, if you if you're into our presenting to you there, yes, yeah. really. So wow. yeah, so I mean, this is for sure. It's interesting. I mean, you go for a, for a jog and uh, may he rest in peace. But I've I've met Steve Jobs. I mean, he was two blocks away from our house, and I I think I've seen him about a dozen of times. You, you didn't have coffee that. with him or anything, did you? No, no. I mean, although we we waved at each other. I mean, he he had a bit of security at the time, and and we we never came to that, and it was probably not on his radar. I mean, a runner in Palo Alto is. It's probably quite common, but I mean, if 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 you want to touch the the, the startup dream with your finger, I guess uh, YC is as close as you're ever gonna get. Uh -huh. um, so I mean, a, a fantastic experience. Um, I, I've also met people there, which really um, kind of um, uh, changed my way of seeing seeing things, especially YC founder, a co-founder. I don't know what he is, but Paul Graham is probably one of the most one of the person that had the, the biggest impact on on my on my life in general and my business life. And, and what did you learn from Paul Graham? Uh, a, a lot of things uh, in in the business. Uh, I, I really learned this this new way of doing doing things, which is done, which was very counterintuitive for me because I was coming from the mobile operation world, which is heavy capex driven industry, mm -hmm. where you have to put to put millions of capex forward before you can see one revenue. Uh, you know, I learned from from Graham the, this idea that you know you need to to test things and do things that don't scale first before you can scale. This was a completely new for me. Which is sort of um, fun fundamental to the startup experience, right? It's that constant iteration of your ideas, testing, exactly. your feedback, iteration, yeah, going iterate fast, ship, uh, get market feedback, adapt the product, ship again until you know you 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 found. What is, what is the product market fit? I recall you had a sort of an interesting uh, living situation when you were uh, at YC. What, what was that exactly? Yeah, I mean, look, I, w I was the old guy there. I mean, actually, it was very funny. I've been the young guy in the boardrooms all my career, uh, all my corporate life. I mean, I, I was the CEO of uh, the biggest um, uh, foreign direct investment in Slovenia. I was 29 years old. So, I mean, I was always the young guy. And uh, as they used to call me in, in the, U the U.S., the baby. Uh, but um, <laughs> suddenly, it's to me, 10 years later, I'm the old guy. I mean, everybody in the Silicon Valley looks at me like, you know, who is this ancestor uh, in this company, you know? You were sharing a room, I believe, with a couple of your co-founders, right? Yeah, I mean, I had no choice. We had a house. I mean, the house were very expensive in Palo Alto, and it was, you know, five co-founders, plus we had developers. So I had to share a room with two guys. So it was a small room, and it was three of us in IKEA beds. <laughs> and here I was, you know, uh, sharing my room. I was 40 with some 23, 24 years old guy uh, on an IKEA bed. Uh, I am so much for it. So one of the things I've found to be extremely interesting in this kind of transition between the corporate realities and the, the realities of startup life is making those adjustments, right? One of my former bosses uh, described this way, you know, when you're in the corporate world, when you get on the plane, you always turn left, right? And when you're an entrepreneur, you always turn right. 
when you enter the plane. Yeah. And that in itself reflects that kind of different mentality and, and what's important and what you get. How did you find that transition? Was it difficult for you? I mean, look, um, on, on the turning left and right, it was very difficult because I'm a big guy. <laughs> uh, I, all the rest was easy frankly speaking I, I have to confess that um those young guys they made it very easy for me um they, and and we all became very very good friends i mean we we were together we reunite twice a year and it was three weeks ago all of us fly from wherever we are so we we build ties and links which are lasting forever um, the turn left and right was definitely the most difficult, just because you know I'm I'm a big guy and, and I hate uh, and you, flying. And you can get you can get used to business class. Let's be honest. And you get used to it. Um, all the rest, uh, sharing house, uh, sharing the bathroom, uh, sharing the car, because we bought just one car for seven of us, and um, you know, doing the grocery uh, with a bike and, and living a more frugal life was very very easy for me to adapt. I, I had no problem. In fact. I found this was great fun. So, and what is it from that experience that you've taken into your role as an investor? Uh, does it shape the way you look at founders or look at business opportunities? Oh yeah, definitely. I I, I think it it opened uh, open up a new world to me. Also, what was very interesting for me was to to see the change of behavior in the new generation. Um, and, and there were three things that really uh, stayed engraved in my mind. I just thought, Jesus, that's that's kind of revolutionized the world. First of all, uh, in one year in Palo Alto, uh, we have never been to the shop, not once, except for grocery. Uh -huh. So every day, I mean, this was in 2010, uh, every day we would have in the morning, I don't know, five, six visits from UPS, FedEx, you name it, DHL, uh, one for uh, sunglasses, uh, one for a pair of jeans. And, and I just said, geez, I mean, nobody goes to the store anymore. It's, it was crazy. And I just, this was uh, one thing. And the second thing which I found very interesting is that they, we had no TV. And I'm, I'm still in uh, that generation that used to see my grandmother at eight o'clock watching the French news. And if I would storm into the, the TV room and I would get a big slap because, you know, these are the eight o'clock news on TV and you don't do that. How Thinking, much TV do you watch now? Uh, myself, zero. I mean, it's it's incredible. And it just opened my eyes. I was just thinking, how are people going to communicate? How are advertisers going to communicate mm -hmm. to this generation, which is going to have the purchasing power? And last but not least, um, I, I remember giving a pen to one of the co-founders to write a, a piece of paper. The guy didn't know how to write. And he looked at a pen as, what is this? What's you know, this ancient stick that you give what, me? Was this hand? ancient stick you put? Exactly. Is this to, to, to pen hieroglyphs or, or whatever? And, and it just, I said, okay, that's, that's the new world of dematerialization. So, you know, I did learn a lot. I mean, it opened my eyes I, on, on a lot of behavioral, society behavioral changes, uh, which of course uh, are, are driving investment decisions. And so how does that drive your investment decisions? What does that mean for you when you're evaluating an investment opportunity? Well, the first thing I'm always thinking is that I am not the market. This was a big eye-opener for me. I say, look, I, I watch TV. I like a pen because I like to write a nice letter, you know, and I like to go to the store because I like to try, you know, and, and I, this, this is a big eye-opener. And it's just, I am not the market. And this opened up the world to me to, to think differently and to think that oh, people behave and have different expectations. Uh, so I, I always try not to understand what I would do uh, if I was using a product that I'm about to invest into, but what the market would do if, if a market can be a physical person. 
Mm-hmm. So that that is the key for me to think market wise, and and not in my opinion. And does it shape your view of founders that you invest in? Of course, uh, living with with founders, uh, actually, uh, a lot of them continue their their founders' career. Uh, one of them actually went to Coinbase and. Uh, he's now a very, very rich guy because he was one of the first employee and then they had a pretty successful IPO about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it, it did uh, teach me because also in YC, we were meeting a lot of founders uh, and you can see different different walks of life, different people, different behavior. But, you know, uh, a lot of the successful one, ones always have the same features of character. The fundamental decision you make as an investor in your stage, right? You're an early stage investor. Is it the founder or is it the business or is it the market? Uh, the founder. The founder or funding team, whichever. Generally, I like at least two founders. I think it's it's a better combination. Uh, look, a, a crappy team is always going to turn a golden idea into crap. Uh, a golden, a golden ID, uh, a crappy ID with a golden team might eventually turn into gold. Uh, people are making the difference, nothing else. So here's one of the dilemmas I have when I work with various startup founders: is I often get asked this question of, you know, everybody assumes they're a great founder, right? Because you know that's what their belief is, and and you feel that they're heading in the right direction, and they're really passionate and they're really persistent. But sometimes you just feel like they're in the wrong place at the wrong time or they're just in the wrong market. How do you know if do you need to develop more persistence just to push through or you just need to give up? I look, this is uh, this is the, the one million dollar question. It's always the most difficult decision. We ha- we had to take this decision ourselves with Double Recall. I mean, we took 562 business development meetings in the U.S. and sold it three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to the point where we're thinking, well, we, you know, maybe we are we are solving a non-existent problem here. Um, uh, look, it's 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 very difficult. Um, I, I think there, up to a certain point, you need to be relentless. You need to be persistent. But uh, you know, there, there's a fine line between persistence and obstination. Uh, and I think you know, it's the hardest one to find. But once you go into obstination, uh, I think you're uh, you're probably uh, you're, you're gone. Let's shift gears a little bit. Talk about going global. All right. We talked about how in your career you've worked in 80 countries and five continents. Yeah. Obviously, that's quite a broad swath of the world. What do you need to do in order to not just take an idea and build it, let's say, in a local market, but really make it into an international success? I think that the biggest pitfall you, you have these days is you believe that because you know Facebook uh, gives you a friend in Timbuktu, uh, that you can do business in Timbuktu immediately. And that's the new generation. They, they they see it that way. I think the biggest pitfall all those guys uh, stumble upon is the fact that, uh, in my opinion, you can only expand if you're f- with physical presence. Um, there are a couple of reasons. Which is that- quite contrarian, right? Because generally we live in a world, especially in the last year and a half, where everything's virtual, everything's distance. I mean, here we are having this conversation yeah. in two different countries as if we were sitting next to each other. Why do you believe that despite the fact that technology has made this possible, that you still need to be present person? Well, I think that there's an, an essential element to understand a market is, is called culture. Uh, and in my opinion, you get that only from local people uh, that work in that market. To some extent, of course, there are things you can you can grow and expand internationally without too much presence. But I mean, I, I have never seen a, a successful expansion without a, a, a physical presence in, in that dedicated market. It's just, 
you know, it, this is how it is. I mean, every country has a different culture, different language, different customs, uh, and and every every of those little items requires an adaptation of the product, or at least the approach of the product. And is it a matter of simply figuring out what you're going to do and then replicating it from market to market by being physically present? Or is it also about adjusting your idea, your product market fit, your marketing to suit a local market? I think there's an element of adjustment uh, almost everywhere. Uh, I mean, look, Uber. Uh, Uber is not authorized, I don't know, in Slovenia. It's authorized in Croatia, but in Croatia, it's authorized only for taxi drivers. Uh, you go to the US, you don't need to be a taxi driver. If you want. So like everybody's driving an Uber or a Lyft uh, in the US. Yeah, yeah. But in Croatia, you cannot do that. You need a, a taxi license. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in, in France, I think they had it uh, and it was only authorized uh, for uh, some uh, d different type of pickups. So, uh, That's a regulatory question, right? Because it's because the, the local regulations don't allow for people without a taxi license to drive. Absolutely. But are there... Are there culture adjustments you need to make? And if so, what are those? Of course. I mean, what is driven by regulation can also be driven by culture adjustments. I mean, you know, some simple example on, you know, some, I don't know, some examples, maybe when you go into a very strong Muslim countries, you know, there are adjustments to the, the Muslim customs. If you go to Orthodox countries, I mean, you adapt to the religion, for example, which sometimes prevails very much in some of the countries. Uh, it, it can be tons of, of different types of, of, of uh, cultural um, cultural requirement to, to execute a strategy in a country. Um, you know, some some countries are extremely price driven. Some countries are quality driven. I think uh, I, I saw it in in the mobile telephony. I mean, we had a cookie cutter approach, uh, but only with the input of a local team and a local operation, we were able to be successful. I see. Let's shift gears uh, and talk about your role now as the founding partner of Bill Rouge Capital. What motivated you to go from corporate to entrepreneurial to investor? Well, I think uh, when you when you've you've had a, a corporate and an entrepreneurial career, uh, I think you, you can uh, become a little bit tired. And but what I mean by tired is there there is one 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 big sword uh, hanging over your head every morning when you wake up is to manage an an operation. Uh, and and, I, and I've done that very very early. Uh, in my career with almost no break for, for 20 years. And I was just thinking, you know, what is the right way to still be impactful uh, in the business world without having to wake up in the morning and deal with, you know, the day-to-day -day operation and the, and the stress of an operation. And I just thought, well, maybe it's a good idea to become a, a, an investor because you can exactly do that. And maybe if you're not too bad at it uh, also some people could benefit from from your experience i think you know very similarly to the way we met together uh where we were looking um you know at the time for an investor and an advisor uh i think that's that's i mean you're probably one of of the uh the inspiration of, of you know uh that gave me an idea so you know zoltan did that uh, and I think it's nice you to know, hear. I didn't realize it was. I had such an impact. Yeah, I mean, you're you, you're the first one that came as an investor and and an advisor, uh, and that kind of opened up my eyes. And thinking, okay, that's that's pretty cool. Maybe I, I should do that. So I started doing that. And then, of course, uh, as I started, I I really uh, became passionate about it. And I think it fulfills uh, both my requirements to still be impactful 
uh, and not completely stressed by uh, a day-to-day operation. Now, I, I read recently that Phil Rouge was listed as the second most active venture capital fund in Eastern Europe with 50 investments in 2020, perhaps, or maybe since 19 and 20. Obviously, that's a, a large presence in large number of investments. How do you find 50 good companies to invest in? Well, we, uh, we did screen a lot of them. Uh, I think we've uh, screened so far uh, more than 1,800 companies. Uh, so you know it's about four to five percent that gets invested. So the, the the key is just to to generate a lot of deal flows. Um, so we we have a very simple uh, web dedicated approach where anyone that wants uh, funding can apply. It takes ten to fifteen minutes to apply. Essentially, answer a couple of questions and upload a deck, which allows us to make a quick preliminary decisions to follow up or not. Uh, and that's how you come to that number. Then you have to adapt to the legal uh, framework. Uh, we've we've introduced and generalized the concept, which uh, is very very uh, prominent in the U.S., which is the convertible note, uh, which shortens the whole process of of not doing an equity deal. And maybe so, you could just explain very simply what the convertible note is for our listeners. Sure, a convertible note is, is essentially a, a, an equity investment with, without taking the equity. Uh, uh, so you put the money forward and you convert into equity when the round becomes more meaningful. So you generally, it's faster because you don't have to go to the notaries and so on to do all the... And you don't uh, have to negotiate uh, valuation. And you don't have to negotiate the valuation because that's generally taken care at the next round. So. Right. So basically, as I understand it, convertible note structure is such that you agree on the amount, you agree on the uh, the use the of cap. the funds, the, the cap, and then you basically uh, get a certain percentage of the company based on the valuation of the next round. Of the next round, which, which is generally is bigger, yeah. at a bigger bigger amount, bigger valuation, so something that would be eventually an equity round. Right. Right. So it's a good way for investors to get a, a foot in the door and it's a good way for entrepreneurs to get some money without necessarily spending too much time on the, the back and forth. Exactly. And money as well, because equity deals are generally costly, whatever you do. Have you found in your um, work with Phil Rouge uh, particular strengths of companies coming out of this region? Uh, yes. What What's very interesting in, in our region uh, is that you have very, very strong technical people uh, and not so strong, I would say, sales and marketing. I, I found a very, very interesting tray of the of the region. It's like a very talented uh, developer of ideas, a bit less talented seller of ideas. And thank God that's the case, because I wouldn't have anything to do. If that wasn't the case. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, and and probably the same for us. I mean, that's you know, we we spend a lot of our. Um, mentoring and advising uh, into sales strategy, product strategy, marketing strategy. Um, so yeah, that's maybe one big difference um, compared to the US or, or uh, maybe European, West European market where uh, you don't, I don't think you see the same amount of technical skills in terms of, of but maybe a bit more, uh, a bit more savvy uh, tech uh, marketing savvy approach. It's funny because uh, you know I was born and raised in the United States, but I've lived most of my career in Europe, and you know I think I was blessed with that sort of American mentality and approach, and certainly strong sales and marketing background. And you know that's something that I certainly explain to some of the companies I work with is that in in the U.S. you simply are raised from a very small age to be very confident and very forthcoming and very proactive. Yeah. 
And that translates well into a very strong sales and marketing background. That's not necessarily the case in a lot of countries, especially in Central Eastern Europe, where it's much more about the technology and the following the rules and making sure you don't overpromise. You know, it's a sort of a, a different yeah. mentality. Do you agree with that? Completely. I mean, completely. Um, I, I think um, there was also, uh, I mean, a lot of the country we, we operate in are, are the former Eastern Bloc as well. Uh, which traditionally didn't have market economy. So people were just asked to, to put a good product together and if the state would eventually buy this product. And that's also maybe one reason uh, on top of the cultural reason you, you just mentioned, uh, which is just the nature of the people. Um, it's in this region, they, they like to under promise of a deliver. Maybe if you go to the U.S., it might be the other way around. Julian, we've got just a few minutes left and I just want to make sure that we, we get one important topic covered. Given your experience building international businesses, given your experience as an entrepreneur, as an investor in early stage companies, what do you think are the one, two, maximum three things that are most important to be successful in building an international startup? Well, I, I think um, I would say, obviously, uh, local presence, uh, that's, that, that's very important. Uh, good funding, uh, it's always going to cost you more to expand. Uh, and uh, adaptability of the product. I mean, you are going to discover new new ways for people to use your product, and you're going to have to to adapt uh, in most of the cases. So adaptability, good funding, and physical presence. And on that note, I want to thank you for your time and your wisdom and for sharing your journey over the years. Thank you, everybody, for joining me on Launch Stories, the Global Startup Podcast. We hope you got a bit of inspiration today and learned some of the ingredients of a successful global business. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. Thank you. Thank you.